Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. You're really trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Because if, you know, if Rhode Island got started by taking land from my people, well, why should I be proud of being a Rhode Islander? And yet when I go to school, everything great about Rhode Island. So it's like you're, you're consistently in this space where you're not quite sure how to even deal with society around you. He was a writer, a printer, a publisher, um, a scientist, an inventor, diplomat, a statesman, um, and he knew a lot about a lot of things. So today we would call him a major influencer. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. Tonight, we look back at Native American history here in the Ocean State. Before English settlers began arriving in the early 1600s, indigenous tribes had lived in the Narragansett Bay area for thousands of years. It's estimated prior to 1610, some 144,000 natives lived in southern New England. It's believed they generally welcomed Europeans. But the diseases they brought, such as smallpox, would ultimately kill huge portions of the native populations. Disease, war, slavery, and relocation would continue for two centuries, pushing the indigenous people out while more and more settlers moved onto their land. By 1832, the Rhode Island Census recorded only 80 Native Americans living in the state. Since then, the native population has grown, but they continue to struggle to maintain their customs and traditions. We first reported this story in March of 2021. Back then, and now again this evening, we will hear from two Native American Rhode Islanders describing the prejudice they faced growing up and their continuing struggle to find their place in today's society while retaining their indigenous heritage. My name is Deborah Spears Moorhead. In my Wampanoag language, it's Katusipu. So I would say, hello, Quay, Watasawiz, Katusipu, Sanunai. And that would be, hello, my name is Deborah, Talking Water, how are you? I grew up the youngest of six. We lived in the area called Lincoln Park. We were the only, maybe there was one other family of color in our neighborhood. Grew up with mostly like non-native people and most of my neighbors were wonderful people. They were the greatest people you'd ever meet. Well, it was really difficult uh, because I didn't, there wasn't anybody that looked like me. So I had a really hard time relating. Raymond Two Hawks Watson, principal chief of the Mashipag Nahigansi tribe and a uh, part of the Rhode Island community. So my grandmother who raised me always sought out educational experiences where there were a diversity of people. And that's just kind of how it is in Providence generally, unless you're going to one of the very expensive sort of private schools. Uh, so even like in daycare, I went to Mount Hope Daycare, which is a few blocks from here. And they were all kids from all different backgrounds. My grandmother, um, Christian woman, she then put me in a Lutheran school, uh, a small Lutheran school. But once again, such a diversity of students. We had uh, Laotians in there, Guatemalans, 
other Indians from different tribes. I think there was a Haitian young lady in there. So always through my educational sort of experiences, my grandmother was very, very specific about making sure I was in certain environments where there would be a diversity of, of people that were there. In the fourth grade, my teacher, he was um, Hispanic. He asked everyone to, we went around the room and asked everyone to tell their um, ethnicity. So I just said black because everybody was calling me black all the time and calling me the n-word. So Mr. Blanco, he said, what are you doing? So I said, well, I know, I said, I know I'm Indian, but nobody will believe me. And he, and he said, well, I know you're Indian. And he said, and you don't have to just say what other people are saying about you. So that was, he was the only person that actually validated who I was. I learned from a very, very early stage that there were lots of different people around um, and that not everyone was like me um, and that that wasn't a bad thing. So that definitely colored in terms of how I, I attempted to engage uh, as I grew up. You're really trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong because if, you know, if Rhode Island got started by taking land from my people, well, why should I be proud of being a Rhode Islander and yet when I go to school, Everything great about Rhode Island. So it's like you're, you're consistently in this space where you're not quite sure how to even deal with society around you. And at a very young age, being sort of introduced to that sort of conflict. Well, it seemed to me like society kept trying to put this uh, message that if you weren't of a certain look, style, status, then you were less than. So I had the self-esteem that it was like, well, I don't have, you know, white skin. I don't have blonde hair. I don't have blue eyes. I don't have a uh, Mercedes in my yard. I don't have a big car. I didn't have all those status symbols that said that you were supposed to have self-esteem. I didn't feel my value was really high then. And it was a, it was a very difficult time in my life because that was when I needed to think that my value was very high. So I made it through, but it was difficult. Especially growing up here in Mount Hope, uh, because if anyone's familiar with the Narragansett Indian tribe, the reservation and the federally recognized communities all the way at the other end of the state. Um, so like middle school and, in, and into high school, yeah, I know I'm an Indian, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a black man. I'm an African-American um, and I'm here in the city I'm going to go be an NBA player. I'm going to be, you know, um, we'll go to a powwow once a year if my grandmother brings me down there. That's cool. And, you know, we'll eat some Johnny cakes or some chowder. But I'm here in the city, so I got to focus on what I need to do here in the city and where I'm trying to go. And then, of course, you know, my grandmother raising um, a quote-unquote black man in an urban environment, uh, she was always fearful of, you know, potentials for things just in society that could be harmful to me. So her sort of uh, advice to me and sort of grooming for me growing up was trying to figure out how I fit into this structure that's around because, you know, things aren't easy for a black man. That was kind of the conversation that we would have. But then, once again, juxtaposed to, but don't forget you're an Narragansett Indian and this is your land and your people are still here. So very, very, now that I'm thinking about it in this conversation, very complex during those younger ages, uh, trying to figure all that out. The first time I saw racism was like my first walk to school. 
I don't know if it was a Monday or a Tuesday, I, I was leaving my house and walking to school with my sister and uh, my friend's brother came by and he was walking to school and he just picked up a stick and started hitting me and calling me nigger. And I took like two hits and then I just got angry and turned around and got a stick and hit him back. And that was the end of him hitting me. He never hit me again because, you know, I was somebody that fought back. How dare I have color in my skin? <laughs> it just seems so silly to me now. And that, the people that did that, they must feel so awful that they did something like that. I, I had just turned 12. I had just turned 12. And um, I finally felt like I was almost a teenager, you know, you know, so Nana, can, can we go to the mall? Some of my friends, we want to go hang out at the mall. And the mall was in Warwick. This is before Providence Place was there. Uh, we're going to go hang out, you know, because I'm almost a teenager. And, you know, we want, okay, you can go there. So I remember I'm there. It's about three or four of my friends. And actually touched base with one of my good friends. He grew up a couple blocks from here as well. Um, and he remembered it vividly. Us being at the mall and then getting approached by security and telling us that, um, you know, we were just hanging around and we weren't buying anything, so we had to leave. But here I am with my CD in my hand from, from the, the CD store. I'm looking around and I, we're like uh, probably some of the very few brown faces that are there. And I, one of my friends asked, well, how come the rest of the kids don't have to leave? We're seeing them hanging and no real answer, just escorted to the door. Um, so, you know, I called my grandmother like, you know, Nana, they just kicked us out of the mall. They said we weren't. So she gets upset, but I'm not really processing why she's so upset. Um, and, you know, come to find out years later, she had made several calls to the administration. Like, you know, why is my grandson treated that way? And there were other no return phone calls or anything. As I got older, I understood. Oh, OK. Why do I have to put away who I am? Why do I have to put it away? I think that um, colonial techniques were set up from the government to try to um, make Native people believe that, you know, they should just become assimilated so that they don't, there's no way that they can say that, you know, that we've been um, done wrong, that the treaties have never been addressed. They've never, you know, honored our treaties. They've taken all our land, they've murdered our ancestors, all of that um, disrespected us. And so if the social constructs that were made from the government up through colonization techniques um, set it up so that it's, it, it's so much easier or comfortable to just say, okay, I won't be who I am. I'll just be part of the melting pot. I'm American, so it doesn't matter who I am. And growing up in Warwick, a, a lot of people were like that. They, they were like, it doesn't matter who you are. But a lot of people were like, you have to be considered less than because you have color. It's an everyday struggle. I think um, different of us deal with it in different ways. Um, I think one of the ways you see people coping with it, and this is why it's such a big problem in the American community, is uh, self-medicating. You know, because you know that something's not right here and you can't figure out how to, 
how to address it. Um, so I think that there's a lot of that, but then you also see the other side where people will go, and I think that this is where I've really tended towards as I've gotten older, fully embracing their culture and wanting to get away from this thing because you know it's not real. I know this isn't real. I know what happened to my people. I know what you did. I know what you're still doing. Um, so I'm going to deal with that in as much as I have to. And when I don't have to, I won't. And I think the best way to, to kind of capture it uh, was in the words of my Uncle Chief Sunset, one of the last full-blood Narragansetts lived right in this neighborhood right here. He said he's an Indian of today, a modern man who forgets not the faith of his forefathers. I would tell a Native girl who was a teenager to always know that you have your own voice and to use your own voice and to write your own story. Don't let anybody write your story for you. That's good. Our thanks to Deborah Spears Moorhead and Raymond Tuhox Watson for sharing their stories with us. We turn now to a story we first reported on in May. Just over the northern Rhode Island border sits Franklin, Massachusetts, named more than 240 years ago in honor of Benjamin Franklin. The great American statesman decided to send a present to the townspeople. While Franklin's gift was not what the citizens had originally hoped for, it would ultimately influence the founding of public education in America. People always want to see the books, and they want to touch them, and they want to know if I've ever touched them. It's, it's almost um, like a sacred um, artifact sort of in town. Reference librarian Vicki Earls says this historic collection of books is so precious, it is kept under lock and key in a glass display case. This is it. This is our baby. The town of Franklin, Massachusetts, treasures these books from the 1700s because they are the genesis of the first and oldest public free lending library in continuous operation in America. A revolutionary idea at the time, the volumes were a gift from famous patriot Benjamin Franklin. So he was a writer, a printer, a publisher, um, a scientist, an inventor, diplomat, a statesman, um, and he knew a lot about a lot of things. So today we would call him a major influencer. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> he was a rock star. He was so popular, in fact, there are 31 towns in the United States today named after Benjamin Franklin. But Franklin, Massachusetts was the first. And this happened in 1778 when the town was founded. A document was presented to the Mass State Legislature for naming the town. And somebody along the way crossed out the original intended name, which was Exeter, and wrote in Franklin. But there was likely an ulterior motive for that name change, according to longtime historian James Johnston. Well, let me tell you about that. The local preacher of the Congregational Church decided that if they gave the honor to Dr. Franklin, that he would give them a bell for their new meeting house. Maybe one of Paul Revere's specials. You know, that would be nice, a nice bronze bell. The bell request for the church steeple was engineered by powerful minister, the Reverend Nathaniel Emmons. Benjamin Franklin replied by sending the now historic collection of books instead. They were loaned out from the Congregational Church and various other buildings around town until the Franklin Library was built in 1904. Why did Ben send books instead of a bell? The ever-clever Franklin explains in the words inscribed on his statue outside the library. Sense being preferable to sound. Well, what he meant was, you know, 
would they rather know something of value or do they just want to listen to the ding dong in the steeple? I guess that's what he had in mind. He was rich. He was the rich guy. And he's a guy that could afford to buy a bell with ready cash. And uh, buying a bell was a very big, big project. I mean, they were expensive. You know, you're talking about and today's money of spending upwards of $200,000. And the books would cost in today's money? ten to 12000 Of the original 116 books Benjamin Franklin gave to start the library, 93 remain. Which is pretty good. Um, and I think, you know, the loss along the way is the same as any library book now where, you know, the dog ate it and it fell in the bathtub. One of the biggest part of the collection is the works of John Locke. And this is the time, the time period in history of the Enlightenment. And John Locke, his theories, his political theories were a big part of that. The person that sort of came up with the theories of um, all people having the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's one of his concepts. And a lot of what he wrote ended up in the uh, Constitution, almost verbatim. There is another chapter to this story. Turn the page forward a few years, and a Franklin farm boy borrows these books. He was born and raised here. He was mostly self-educated and mostly self-educated through the Benjamin Franklin collection. The self-educated student was none other than Horace Mann, considered the father of public education in America. He believed that all children have the right to education and that education should be tax-supported. Not only public education for white people, but he thought that Native Americans, people of color, uh, women should have the equal opportunity to secure a good education. And when he became the president of Antioch College, uh, he opened the doors to women, to Native Americans, to people of color, all on an equal basis. And man believed all public schools should have a library filled with children's books. Historian Johnston says Mann and Franklin had a lot in common. They were both very innovative people. They were both people who were very prone to thinking outside of the box, if you will. They, they weren't limited by, by the culture of the time. They were thinking beyond the culture of the time. Unfortunately, Benjamin Franklin never got to visit his town in Massachusetts. He died in 1790, shortly after donating the book collection. What do you think Ben Franklin would have thought of his namesake town? I think he would be happy, established a very nice home for his books, and I think that he would have been happy to know that his books started something very, very positive. I think he was hoping that somebody in this town would prefer sense to sound. I'm sure he was hoping for that. To learn more about Benjamin Franklin and his extraordinary life, you can stream Benjamin Franklin, a Ken Burns documentary on Rhode Island PBS Passport. Finally, we visit another library. The Providence Athenaeum may not be as old as the Franklin Library. It was first established nearly 190 years ago, but some of its treasures are just as eye-popping. Back in April, for our continuing series, Window on Rhode Island, Stephanie Ovoyan, head of research and library services, took us on a tour and shared some intriguing finds. 
I'm Stephanie O'Voyan. I'm the head of research and library services here at the Providence Athenaeum. We are kind of a relic here in Providence. We're a 19th century library that's operating in the 21st century. The building has so much charm and so many fun little aspects to it that any time you turn a corner you're bound to notice something new. Here we are at the Athenaeum's card catalog. This was introduced to the library in the 1880s and a librarian named Grace Leonard was hired in 1895 specifically to introduce the Dewey Decimal System to the library. So at the time of her hire we had 56,000 items in the collection and it took Grace 13 years to finish writing out all of the cards. If we open up one of these drawers you can still see Grace's handwritten cards inside. So here we have one of the gems of the Athenaeum's art collection. This is The Hours by Newport-based artist Edward Malbone. It was stolen in 1881 by one Providence gentleman and then another man who was thought to have been part of Jesse James's gang. But a detective was on the case, uh, produced a reward poster, and the works came back to the library. It's lived in this case here ever since. So welcome to the Philbrook Rare Book Room. Out on display on the cabinet today we have The Description of Egypt. This set of books was commissioned by Napoleon when he was bringing his troops to Egypt. He also brought scholars, scientists, and artists to record everything that they were seeing in Egypt. And then they published their findings in this set of books. It was a real hot ticket item at the time and the books were responsible for paving the way for the birth of modern Egyptology and kicking off the wave of Egyptomania that swept through North America and Europe at the time. Here we have the volumes of text in these folio size volumes. Next we've got the volumes of plates which were published in these elephant folio size volumes. And then lastly we have three of these double elephant folio size volumes which contain the largest plates and maps. And these are the largest books in the Athenaeum's collection. And then just for fun I've pulled out also the library's smallest book. This measures just about an inch by three quarters of an inch and it's an edition of Robert Burns' Kilmarnock, uh, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect. And this is the art room where we honor the legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. We'll set the scene in the year 1848. The poet Sarah Helen Whitman was a local poet. And by 1848, she was considered one of the best poets in America. And also in the year 1848, the poet Edgar Allan Poe was the talk of literary society. The two poets began a correspondence and Poe would come to visit Whitman here in Providence. The two would come to the Athenaeum. And at one point during their time at the Athenaeum, Whitman asked Poe if he knew who wrote a poem called Ulla Loom, which had been anonymously published in a periodical called the American Whig Review. Poe took our copy of that book off the shelf, opened up to the poem, and signed his name in pencil at the bottom of the page. Because he had written it, he had just submitted it anonymously. We have that book in our collection still today, here. Um, and you can see his signature at the bottom of the page right there. That must have been kind of a smooth move between poets, and Whitman agreed to marry Poe, on the condition that he remained sober because he had a known drinking problem. At one point during one of their visits at the Athenaeum on December 23rd, two days before their Christmas Day wedding, someone came in with a note for Whitman claiming to have seen Poe out drinking that morning and the night before. She ran back to her home where she fainted on the couch. Poe begged her to still marry him and she said while she did still love him, she could no longer marry him. Poe left Providence. Uh, the two never saw each other again and then he was dead within a year. So it's a bit of a tragic love story. But Sarah Helen Whitman lived for almost 30 more years after Poe's death, and she was a firm defender of his reputation. 
Here we are in an alcove at the Athenaeum. And this is a fun little secret part of the library that we like to tell people about. Here in the desk, you can see that over the years, lots of visitors have come to the library and left little notes for one another inside the desk drawers. You can find them throughout the library. This drawer has a ton. This one probably has about 50 notes inside. Um, other desks have a similar amount, some have fewer. Um, they're just tucked in everywhere. So this one's pretty lovely, this illustration in there. Um, we've got all sorts of notes, little poems, longer letters. So everyone is part of the Athenaeum's history. Um, it doesn't have to be from 1850 or 1838 when we were established, but even just last year or this year, everyone makes a little mark on the library. Our thanks to Stephanie Ovoyan. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.